All right, everybody, good morning. Let's, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day and our opportunity to gather as the body of Christ and to worship you in, uh, in several different ways and uh, starting off with our study of your word. We thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself and your great plan of redemption in your word. We thank you for all the promises and the warnings and the truths that are contained in your scripture. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity to study uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, we ask, Lord, that uh, you would open our hearts and minds and pour out your Holy Spirit so that we could be filled with your Spirit as we study, that we could really learn what you're trying to teach us from your Word and apply it to our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. We thank you for the plan of redemption, especially in sending Christ to die on the cross for my sins. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, part 26. Um, I thank you for sticking with me through 26 parts of the book of Revelation. So that means that this is the last week of the current quarter. And so you should have received an email, I think, through Hope Book, uh, asking you to register for next quarter's classes. And so next quarter will be continuing. And if you've, if you've stuck with it this far, you don't want to miss the happy ending. Um, so we've, we've slogged through death and destruction and dragons and beasts and, and uh, next quarter we get to the new heavens and the new earth uh, where there's no more sin, no more death, no more guilt, no more shame, no more tears, no more suffering, um, just being with the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever. So you don't want to miss that. So sign up for next quarter. Okay, uh, so part 26, the final false prophet. And so, of course, there have been many false prophets. Um, and this will be the final false prophet that we're going to meet today. And the latter half of chapter 13, we're going to see this final false prophet. We're going to talk about his person. Who is he? His power and his program. Uh, the false prophet. So before we do that, first we want to take a look back at what we did in the first half of chapter 13 last week. We looked at the beast out of the sea. So uh, John saw the dragon who had been thrown down to the earth, remember, and the dragon summons the Antichrist, this beast out of the sea. Um, the sea is really a euphemism for the abyss. Uh, it's really the... Um, the dragon, the, the, the Antichrist, the, the demon possessing the Antichrist coming up out of the abyss. Uh, the beast has a, this uh, description of ten horns and seven heads and uh, ten crowns, and it's similar to the description that was applied to Satan in chapter 12. And as we will see in chapter 17, when we get there, the heads represent seven successive world empires, which culminate in the empire that the Antichrist will oversee. Um, and so the, uh, the dragon is the source of the Antichrist's power. The dragon is Satan. Um, the, this, and Satan shares his throne with the Antichrist and gives this great authority to the Antichrist. Uh, one of the heads appears to be slain, so it, it's a, it appears to be a fatal wound that the, uh, the Antichrist recovers from, and we'll see more about that in today's lesson as well. 
um, that it seems that he's overcome death and causes people to worship this antichrist. Uh, he's a blasphemer, an open blasphemer of God, um, and he's given authority to have. Uh, he's given. He's granted authority for a certain amount of time, uh, forty-two months. And so the second half of the tribulation, what's called the Great Tribulation, uh, it's variously described as 42 months, as time, times, and half a time, which is three and a half years, or 1260 days, all the same period of time describing that second half of the tribulation period. Uh, he makes war against the saints and overcomes them in the sense, the physical sense, of course, not in the spiritual sense. Um, and everybody else... Um, those who dwell on the earth will worship him, uh, this antichrist, this beast. Um, believers uh, will, some of, some of believers at this time, during that time, during that, this uh, great tribulation, will be imprisoned and some will be killed. Uh, but the saints will persevere in their faith in spite of this persecution. Uh, that's what we learned last time. So, any questions? Any leftover? Qu yes, sir. <clears throat> yes, that's right. Uh, I think that's an indication that those previous um, indications of he was an ear, it, it, the church is still there, and so it's, it's directed directly to the church. Now the church is raptured, so the church is not mentioned. I think that's just an indication, another indication that the rapture has occurred. Good question. Any others? Any questions left over from last week? Okay. Um, so let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 13, and we'll start with verse 11. So Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, in your old-fashioned paper copy of the Bible, or your newfangled device. Revelation chapter 13, starting in verse 11, this is the word of the Lord. So John has been in a vision. This vision is really a continuous vision from starting in chapter 12. Um, and this is a new part of the vision that we see here. Um, so starting in verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak, and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. 
So, false prophet. Let's take a look at this false prophet who comes up after the Antichrist, the beast, the first beast. Uh, here's a few paragraphs from John MacArthur in his commentary to introduction to this section of scripture. Uh, uh, Pastor MacArthur says, the major weapon in Satan's arsenal is deception. Satan, Jesus declared, is a liar and the father of lies, who disguises himself as an angel of light to deceive people. From his first appearance on earth in the Garden of Eden until his final appearance at the end of the millennium, Satan is a liar and a deceiver. He constantly seeks to confuse people, blinding the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Since Satan is a deceiver, it follows that his agents, both human and demonic, are also deceivers. The Apostle Paul warned that Satan's servants, who also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, though they are purveyors of wickedness, lies, and deceit, the devil uses them to spread his damning doctrines of demons. As he concluded the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ solemnly declared, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In his second epistle, Peter wrote, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even de denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. The Apostle John cautioned, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Just as the false Christs who have plagued mankind will culminate in the final Antichrist, so also will the false prophets culminate in a final false prophet. He will be Satan's last and most powerful lying deceiver. The false prophet will be able to deceive the unbelieving world because of the power of religion over men's minds is so great. People are incurable worshipers. Everyone worships someone, whether the true God, false gods, or themselves. There is in the heart of man the longing for someone transcendent, someone beyond himself that can deliver him from his troubling circumstances. The terrifying unparalleled events of the tribulation will intensify that longing for a supernatural deliverer. The false prophet will convince the unbelieving world that Antichrist is the solution to the world's pressing problems. He may well be the most eloquent, powerful, convincing speaker in human history, and his lofty oratory will persuade the world to worship Antichrist. The worldwide joining of political and religious power in the end times is detailed in Revelation chapter 17. For a time, the two powers will coexist. Eventually, however, Antichrist will destroy the false religious system and institute the worship of himself. That will happen at the midpoint of the tribulation when Antichrist sets up the abomination of desolation. Having reached the pinnacle of his power, Antichrist will destroy all other religions. The worship of Antichrist, fomented by the false prophet, will become the only religion tolerated. So that's John MacArthur's introduction to this section of scripture. So let's take a look, verse by verse, at what we see here. Verse number 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. So John, this is continuing his vision. He's seen the terrifying vision of the first beast that we talked about last week. 
And now he sees another beast. The first beast came up out of the sea. This one up out of the earth. Um, so this beast, some see this second beast as an institution or a form of government or an ideology, but that doesn't really fit the Greek. Uh, alos is, means another, but it means another of the same kind as what just became, uh, came before. It indicates that he, like the first beast, is a person. Uh, there's more proof <clears throat> when we get to Revelation chapter 19. Uh, Revelation chapter 19.20 says this, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Obviously, it's people, not ideologies or institutions or governments that are thrown into hell. And so, this is a person, um, in spite of what uh, some commentators and interpreters have talked about this particular beast as a, some sort of a in institution or something. It doesn't make sense when we get to chapter 19 and this false prophet is tossed into the lake of fire. Wouldn't make sense. Um, so in contrast to the first beast who comes out of the sea, the second beast comes up out of the earth. Um, so uh, like the Antichrist, the false prophet will be indwelt by a demon out of the abyss, uh, which is pictured here as the flaming depths of the earth. And so it's, it's this is a language picture, a word picture that uh, John's painting of a vision that he sees and it's um, coming out of the sea or coming out of the earth uh, really is um, a word picture of the demons coming up out of the abyss that indwell this beast, both of these beasts, uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet, both. Uh, in the, however, there are some differences. In the ancient world, the earth was less mysterious and foreboding than the sea. Uh, so the false prophet arising from the earth suggests he will be subtler, gentler, less overpowering, less terrifying, the openly terrifying than the Antichrist. Um, and so that, pit, that fits a picture of uh, this false prophet being kind of winsome and persuasive, persuading people, as we'll see, to worship the Antichrist, the first beast. Uh, so the epitome of a wolf in sheep's clothing that Jesus warned about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Um, we read a little bit of that. Uh, uh, John MacArthur quoted a little bit of that in his introduction. Uh, Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you uh, in sheep's clothing. They're really ravenous wolves. Um, and so this is kind of the sheep's clothing part of this um, kind of unholy trinity. Uh, we've got what we've seen here in this vision is you've got Satan, the dragon, who's trying to set him up himself up as a replacement for God the Father. You've got Antichrist, who seemed to have a wound and seemed to have been resurrected, uh, set up as a false Christ, uh, God the Son. And now you have this prophet who's going to be pointing people to worship the false Christ. Just as the true Holy Spirit points people to worship the true Christ, this is a false prophet pointing people to worship the fake Christ. And so it's essentially, uh, in some respects, a fake trinity that we have here. Dragon, beast, and beast. 
the description of the first beast um, has it had ten horns and seven heads and ten crowns and seven blasphemous names. It was grotesque and frightening. In contrast, the second beast merely has two horns and it's compared to a lamb. However, in reality, it's a beast. It's a terrible beast, but it's disguised as a lamb. Uh, that indicates that he is not characterized by the same massive might as the Antichrist, and unlike the savage, ferocious, fierce Antichrist, who is likened to these fierce beasts, a leopard and a bear and a lion, we have the false prophet compared to a lamb. Uh, uh, harmless, harmless lamb. But, in fact, he's not harmless. So he's only pretending to be uh, a harmless lamb. Uh, really, he's a beast. Uh, he's speaking like a dragon. He is a nasty beast. Uh, but he's trying to disguise himself as a lamb. Um, yeah. This is one artist rendering of uh, the beast with two horns coming up out of the earth like that, was speaking with the speaking as a dragon. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A forked tongue there, yes. Yeah, we've got the forked tongue there. So some of these artists are pretty amazing. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and you can see him coming up out of the earth there. Yeah, it takes a real imagination to do something like this. <clears throat> it is, yeah. Uh, any questions so far? What we've got so far? Question? Question so far? Okay. Um, so, and despite his deceptive, mild appearance, uh, false prophet is no less a child of hell than the Antichrist. Uh, that's evident because he spoke as a dragon. Uh, a strange voice indeed for a lamb to have. Um, so the false prophet will be, like the Antichrist, will be a mouthpiece for the dragon, a mouthpiece for Satan, speaking his words. Uh, but he's not going to speak with uh, overt blasphemies like the Antichrist. Um, instead, he speaks winsome, deceiving words to try to, uh, he's going to be persuasive. We'll, we'll see that as we move along, that this, uh, this false prophet is a persuasive man. He's luring the world to worship the vile, satanic dictator, the Antichrist. Um, the false prophets often appear meek, mild, and harmless. They offer hope and solutions to problems that are troubling people. Uh, yet they are ever the voices of hell in reality. When they open their mouths, Satan speaks. No matter what, no matter how well they speak, no matter how nice it sounds. He's speaking with the words of Satan. Um, so he comes like a lamb, speaking false, deceptive words of comfort, promising the suffering, tormented people here in the midst of the tribulation that all will be well as long as they worship the Antichrist. There he is. He, he's conquered death. All we've got to do is worship this Antichrist, and everything is going to be fine. But those who fall for his subtle lies will face the terrifying judgment of God. And of course, we'll see that in chapter 14 and chapter 16, that those who follow this false prophet and this Antichrist will come to doom. They'll be judged by the living God. Verse 12, uh, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. So he's a spokesperson pointing to the first beast, to the Antichrist, and he's persuasive. Uh, so he's a subtle deceiver, uh, but he's got power. Uh, he exercises authority, notice, of the first beast. So where did the first beast get his authority? From the dragon, from Satan. And so now the 
first beast, the Antichrist, is going to give authority to this second beast, this false prophet. So he's going to exercise authority which comes from Satan through the Antichrist to the false prophet. Um, some believe that the false prophet will replace Antichrist and rule alone during the Great Tribulation, but that's not possible uh, because the false prophet exercises authority in the presence of the Antichrist. So he can't be replacing him because it says right there it's in the presence. And of course we've already seen in Revelation 19.20 they're both together tossed into the lake of fire. So he, the first, second beast can't be replacing the first beast. They're still there. He's, in the, he's doing everything he does in the presence of the first beast and they're both still there to be tossed into the lake of fire. So what's being said here is that the false prophet will exercise the same kind of demonic power and authority as the Antichrist does. And both are empowered from the same source, from the dragon, from Satan. That's where both the Antichrist and the false prophet get their authority and power. Um, and so that he exercises this authority in the presence in, in, of the Antichrist implies the Antichrist will have delegated this some of his authority to him that he got from the dragon. Uh, the false prophet's mission will be to use all the means available to him from the Antichrist to cause the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. That's his, his, his program. That's, his, uh, that's what he sets out to do. That's what his focus is. His focus is to get everybody to worship the Antichrist. And so this is once again a parallel with the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit's focus is to get people to focus on Christ, to point people to Christ. Um, and so in this fake knockoff trinity that this, the devil is trying to set up, this is kind of the Holy Spirit figure that points to um, uh, the, the unholy spirit pointing to the, the fake Christ. Um, if you will. And so he's the leader of the worldwide cult of Antichrist worship, uh, essentially, this false prophet. So uh, the false prophet's efforts to promote the worship of the Antichrist will receive a big boost from the spectacular event, which we mentioned last time, and which is mentioned again here in this scripture, uh, the apparent healing of the first beast's fatal wound. Uh, the, the, so the, the false prophet has something to point to. Look at this wonderful beast here who has overcome death. Um, and so he's got, a, he's got a talking point, right? He's got a powerful talking point. Um, so we talked about this last time in verse 3, the, the end of Christ's supposed resurrection from the dead. Um, a satanic imitation of Christ's resurrection once again. Uh, but also that of the two witnesses. Remember in chapter 11, the two witnesses were actually dead. And they were actually dead for four days and came back to life. And so what, what does Satan do? He says, well, I've seen that trick. I can, I can, do, I can do that trick, right? So here's my, here's my witness, and he's dead, and now I bring him back to life, um, just like God did. Um, and so... Uh, most likely the Antichrist's death was staged and his resurrection is a ruse. Um, it's less likely that God would, for his own sovereign purposes, actually permit the Antichrist to rise from the dead. Uh, he, he certainly has the power and authority to do that. The, the, the real God could do that, uh, but it doesn't seem likely that he would do that. 
In either case, however, the world accepts the Antichrist's resurrection as genuine um, and, and enhances his prestige and that of the false prophet and gives the false prophet, as I said, a, an excellent talking point. Here's the beast, he's risen from the dead. Follow him. Uh, chapter, uh, verse 13. Uh, verse 13 says, he performs great signs, so this is talking about the false prophet now, so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Performs great signs. Uh, so besides his involvement in Antichrist's resurrection, the false prophet will perform great signs of his own. Um, and so these signs mimic miracles that we've seen the, the true God do. Uh, miracles performed by Christ during his earthly ministry, and also miracles by the two witnesses. The two witnesses have called fire from heaven, and so Satan has seen that, and so he comes up with his own uh, counterfeit version. And we've seen this in Scripture over and over again. Uh, at the time uh, when Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh and performed miracles, um, Janus, Janus and Jambres, the magicians of Pharaoh's court, also did miracles or appeared to do miracles some of them uh, if you remember Aaron threw his staff down and it turned into a snake and then magi magicians court magicians came along and threw their staffs down and they turned into snakes and then Aaron's snake ate, ate their snakes um, you know this this is just a, a, an indication that that God um, in in that particular case was determined to show who was in charge um, and so even though they did something that looked like the same thing, Aaron's staff ate up their, their snakes. Um, so, but, but Satan has been doing this for thousands of years, trying to imitate the things that God does. All the way back to the time of, of Egypt and Moses. Uh, we have a description in Acts chapter 8 of a, a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing uh, the people of Samaria claiming to be someone great. And notice the, the reaction of the crowd. And, and they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. And so Satan has been doing this sort of thing all along, imitating uh, miracles, true miracles of God. And he does it again with this false prophet. Uh, once again, same thing. Uh, Satan is an, an imitator. of he, tr he tries to imitate God. So, uh, and then in verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. And so he, they imitate the two witnesses, making fire come down from earth, just like the two witnesses did in chapter 11. Uh, the present tense of the Greek word there, poieo, uh, makes suggests that he will repeatedly perform. So that Greek tense means he does it and he continues to do it, making fire come out of heaven. It's not just a one-time thing. Uh, to impress them with his power. So, so this is Satan doing this through his two lackeys, the Antichrist and now the false prophet, uh, to impress people, to, to uh, convince them to worship someone or something other than the true God. That's what Satan's trying to do draw people away from the true God to worship him ultimately. Um, and so God has demonstrated supernatural power through sending fire from heaven many times throughout scripture. 
book of Genesis, Leviticus, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, previously here in the book of Revelation in chapter 11. And so Satan's henchmen perform a similar sign, a knockoff, a copy. Uh, but it's one of the false wonders that Paul talks about in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 that will lure unbelievers to their doom. So the false prophet will succeed in his efforts. Um, the, between the, resu- the, the apparent resurrection of the Antichrist, the first beast, and these signs and wonders, these false wonders of the, uh, of this, of the false prophet, the second beast, um, they will deceive those who dwell on the earth, exactly as Jesus predicted in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and also in Mark 13. He said that this um, Antichrist and this false prophet would deceive the world. Um, so, continuing in verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which is given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the, of the sword and has come to life. Um, and so, deceives, planao, um, it literally means to wander, cause people to wander. Uh, it forms the root of the English word planet, uh, since the planets appear to wander in the heavens. Um, and so deceives, causing people to wander from the true path, uh, is, the, is the word picture there. Uh, so the world will be utterly vulnerable to this deception during the tribulation. Uh, there's already, we've, we've looked at all these unparalleled disasters and horrors that have taken place, leaving people desperate for answers. And it, rather than turning to the true God they turn to this false Christ and this false prophet instead. They're vulnerable. Uh, They've rejected the true gospel and blasphemed the true God, and they're eager to believe in something. And here here comes this false prophet and this false Christ and gives them an alternative, something else to believe in. And John defines the people who were deceived by those who dwell on the earth, and this is the technical phrase used throughout Revelation, as we mentioned a number of times, to represent unbelievers. Uh, those who dwell on the earth. Um, they, uh, believers know the truth and are protected by their God, and they will recognize the false prophet's teaching as lies and will not be, sl- be swayed because of the signs which they see, because the signs are not done, they are not pointing towards God and his Christ. So all true miracles, all true signs and wonders are for the purpose of pointing to Christ, of um, validating a message that actually comes from God and points towards his true um, means of redemption, his story of redemption, his method of redemption, and anything that points away from the one true God and his Christ is a false sign and wonder. Um, And believers will be able to recognize the difference. The unbelieving world will not be able to recognize the difference, but believers will uh, be able to recognize the, the difference. But the unbelieving world will be deceived, um, uh, but, but not only because of the deception of the, uh, of the Satan and his, and his lackeys, but also as a judgment from God. It's, this is part of God's judgment on the unbelieving world.
So this false prophet's preaching will succeed in part because it will arrive with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. That's what Paul, describing this time period in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that's the way he describes it. Um, they're deceived because of their wickedness. Uh, but it will also succeed because... God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Um, and so it's both. It's both a judgment from God, but he uses instrumentality here of a deceptive um, antichrist and a deceptive false prophets. Um, are, his, are his instruments of judgment in this case. And so we see God use instruments, evil instruments in many cases, to exercise his judgment. Uh, we saw him bring pagan armies to judge Israel for their uh, unbelief belief in wickedness. And he's going to do it again uh, here in, in the end times. So... Uh, the power of the Antichrist and the persuasiveness of the false prophet continue to grow, and Satan will escalate the false world religion of Antichrist worship. So the beast is going to be successful, the second beast, at building up uh, a worldwide worship of the first beast, the Antichrist. Um, and so it, it continues to get worse, and it, it escalates to the point where the false prophet... Um, he'll be able to make people obey his command to make an image of the beast. So, outright idol worship by making an image of the first beast, the Antichrist. So, this is kind of shocking and blatant idolatry. So, um, in this day and age, we don't think of people bowing down to actual images and statues, but in, throughout history, that's been the case. And it appears that it will be the case again in the future, an image of the beast that people will worship. Um, and so we saw that, of course, in history. We saw that in Daniel chapter 3 with Nebuchadnezzar setting up a statue, an actual statue of himself, and, and uh, commanding that everybody bow down to worship the statue of himself. Uh, but evidently the, the Antichrist is going to institute something like this on a global scale. Uh, with the false prophet setting up a statue of himself as a symbol of his deity and worldwide worship. Um, and so this image, um, based on what we read in other parts of scriptures, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 9, uh, could very well be the abomination of desolation and therefore would necessarily be set up in the temple, the image of the Antichrist. Uh, could be. Uh, it's a tribute to the Antichrist and his awesome power of overcoming death, apparently, um, uh, seeming to conquer death. And so let's set up a statue to this guy and let's just worship him outright, worship this, not only him, but a statue, a very statue of him. Um, and then it gets even more bizarre um, in, in verse 15. So look at verse 15. And it was given to him... Uh, that's the that him there is the false prophet, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak, and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. 
So just like Nebuchadnezzar, if anybody doesn't worship this statue of the Antichrist, they're killed. It's the death penalty. So um, the idolatrous image of the Antichrist is different from other idols in human history. Uh, so the Bible scornfully talks about other idols as having mouths yet unable to speak uh, in many places in Scripture, in several places in the Psalms, in Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Habakkuk. Uh, these, are, uh, these are dumb idols. They have, you may paint a mouth on there, but it can't speak. This one is actually going to speak. Um, so this is a display of power that God has allowed Satan to exercise through his two minions. Uh, the false prophet is allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak. Uh, breath is uh, interesting. It's penuma uh, 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 is the word there for breath, not zoe or bios, which are the typical Greek words translated life. Um, so it's kind of, it's an indication. The Greek word that's used there is an indication uh, that it's, um, it's the appearance of being alive. It's not alive. It's not a Greek word that would indicate that this thing has actually come to life. It's appearance of coming to life. Um, with today's amazing special effects and technology and robotics, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that you could make something look like it had come to life. Um, and with the world's desperate need amid the carnage of the tribulation to believe in someone that could conquer death and could make a statue come alive, uh, the ruse becomes believable. Um, and so here we have a talking statue. Um, and people think it's really come to life because they think that the Antichrist has come back from the dead. And now they think that this statue has come of the Antichrist has come to life. So just one more reason for the unbelieving world to worship this Antichrist uh, as opposed to the true Christ and the true, the one true and living God. Any questions so far? Comments, questions about what's going on here? Yes. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, this, the, the whole iconoclasty uh, of Eastern Orthodoxy is interesting. Uh, because many of them will say it's not the actual icon that they're worshiping. They're worshiping the, the true God through the icon. But it really, what does it amount to? It amounts to worshiping that thing. Yeah, it, it amounts to worship. But they get very upset if you say that, because they've got this kind of subtle, um, they've got a, a, a mechanism that, so that they have convinced themselves that it's not idolatry. Yeah, so if that were possible. So there's a little phrase at the end of that verse that even the, even the elect would be deceived if that were possible. Um, and so I think the, the, the meaning of that verse is that the deception is very extreme. But right up to the point where it, it, it might almost deceive the elect if that were possible. But it's not possible. But it, the, the deception is so extreme it goes all the way up to that limit. Yeah. But thank God for Romans 8. Yep, thank God for that. Yep. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. That's right. Right. Yeah, that's an that's a interesting way that, uh, to put it, is that it's the, the, the deception is so extreme that it, if it were possible, it would deceive even the elect. But it's not possible. All right. Uh, anything else? That's continuing along. So 
Um, we have this uh, image of the beast seeming to come alive and people are worshipping. And if you don't worship the image of the beast, just like Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't bow down to that statue, death penalty. If you don't bow down to this statue of the beast, uh, of the Antichrist, death penalty. Uh, cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Uh, so he's dropping the facade of being a gentle lamb here. Death penalty. Death for anybody that doesn't worship this beast. So he's persuading, persuading, persuading. And if you're not persuaded, then you're, you die. Um, so uh, the, 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 sh the sheep's clothing comes off and we see the wolf uh, here. Um, if you don't, don't, don't bow down and worship, I'll kill you. Um, and so that's very similar to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3, the death sentence decreed for anybody who refuses to worship the image of the Antichrist. Uh, so, and so we've seen that there's going to be a multitude of martyrs coming out of this tribulation. We've seen that already. Um, and this could be the source of many of them. Uh, believers will refuse to bow down to that image of this Antichrist, and they will be executed for it, um, making many martyrs. Um, the, descent, the death sentence will be decreed for all, but not all believers will be killed. Some will survive until Christ returns and enter the millennial kingdom as living people. We see that Isaiah 65 and Matthew chapter 25, that the, some will survive this. Uh, nor will the Antichrist kill all the Jews. Uh, Two-thirds of them will perish, but the rest will be protected. We see that in Zechariah 13. By the way, the, I looked it up. The Jewish population in 1939 was about 18 million. And by 1945, it was 12 million because 6 million had been killed. And so that's exactly one-third. One-third were killed in the Holocaust. Two-thirds will be killed here. One-third killed in the, uh, in the Holocaust. Two-thirds killed in this second Holocaust here. And the Jewish population right now is up to about 17 million. Um, and of those 17 million, 7.2 million in Israel, 6.3 million in the U.S. So about 80% of all the Jews on the planet are in two countries, Israel and the United States. Um, and so we don't know how big the Jewish population is going to be when the tribulation kicks off. But let's say it gets to back to 18 million, then that would be 12 million Jews killed in the tribulation as compared to 6 million killed in the Holocaust. Okay, uh, let's see. Continuing along, verse 16. So let's take a look at verse 16. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So, as part of his plan to enforce worship of the Antichrist, the false prophet will require all categories of unbelievers, summarized as the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the slave, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Uh, mark, haragma, um, means to engrave. Uh, it was the term used for images or names of emperors stamped on Romans' coins. That was the, that's the word, mark. Mark with the image of the, of the emperor on the coin. Uh, such marks were commonly given to slaves and soldiers and devotees of religious cults um, in ancient times. 
Um, and of course, we've seen God seal with a mark on the forehead the 144,000 to preserve them from his wrath against the unbelieving world in Revelation chapter 7. So the false prophet marks the unsaved to preserve them from Antichrist's wrath against God's people. So once again, we see Satan copying something that God has done. Um, a false copy, a knockoff, that's what Satan does. Um, so we have this seal. Uh, the mark will signify that the person bearing it is a worshiper and loyal to the Antichrist. And so true believers will not do this and will be killed for it and will be unable to uh, buy and sell because of it. Um, so, so besides the constant threat of death, so for not worshiping the beast, you, there's the death penalty, um, but if you refuse to get the mark of the beast, you can, there's also practical daily living um, consequences. You can't buy or sell. Um, so his, the Antichrist empire will maintain strict economic control over the world. So things like food and clothing and medical supplies and other life necessaries um, will be unobtainable for those who don't have the mark. You're not going to be able to buy food or clothing um, because you don't have the mark of the beast. Um, most likely this means that uh, currency will vanish and there's already quite a bit of work been done on a uh, digital currency rather than actual currency um, instead of credit cards that can be lost people have a mark possibly a barcode there's already work on chips that can be implanted so that you can uh, buy and sell things without any cash or credit card um, in, in this case it says the forehead of the hand Scanning people's forehead or hands will identify them in the central computer system so that you can buy or sell. Uh, so life under totalitarian governments in our time have started to do this. Uh, I read one account of a, of a man who escaped uh, communist Bulgaria, and he said this is going back to the 60s and 70s. They had ration cards. And you, that's the only way you could buy things at a store is with your ration card, ration card issued to you by the government. And if you don't have a government-issued ration card, you can't buy anything at the store. Uh, that goes back to the 1960s and 70s. Uh, today, the uh, Chinese Communist Party in, in China has what they call a social credit score. Um, they've got facial recognition software set up all over the country so they can recognize a person's face as they walk into a store. Um, and your social credit will constrict what you can do. If you don't have good social credit, in other words, if you haven't done what the government told you you can do, then your, uh, your credit is restricted, for example. Um, and your internet is restricted. Your, your access, even if you go to something like an internet cafe, as it scans your face and it scans your credit score, your social credit score, if you haven't been um, complimentary enough about the Chinese Communist Party, you won't be able to access the internet. Um, and so these sort of things are already starting in today's day and age. And so who knows what it'll be like whenever we get to this point of the Great Tribulation. But there, there are already tools, powerful tools, available to governments today to restrict what people can and can't do. And governments have restricted people's ability to buy things, including necessaries, going back to the 60s and, and 70s. That's true. I mean, yes, there's, there's quite a bit of surveillance of the things we do. So uh, just as another example, I, I, um, I, I was buying a pair of slippers from my mother. And so I was searching for slippers from my mother. 
And then for the next week, every web page that I browse, it has, it has advertisements for women's slippers. Um, and so obviously somebody was watching the fact that I, I was looking for women's slippers and now advertisements for women's slippers pop up you know, every, every time I, I, I go to a web page. <clears throat> yeah. But yes, and believers will not be fooled because these sort of things are not pointing to Christ. And, and so uh, Christ said, uh, test the spirits. Uh, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirit. And how do you test the spirit? Does the spirit point to Christ or does it not? Um, and so that's how you test a spirit. Um, yeah, so good. Yeah, yes. Let me, let me keep going. So... Um, so the, the description we get is that the mark is either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Um, so it, it will, it, there will be some kind of a universal designation, uh, name within a numbering system. The exact identification is unclear. Uh, what this mark is, uh, everyone will be required to have the mark or suffer consequences. Um, there is an exclamation there, here is wisdom. It's a warning that those alive at the time to be wise and discerning, they will need to recognize what is happening and understand the significance of the number once it comes about. Uh, those with understanding will be able to calculate the number of the beast, for that number is the number of man. His number is 666. Now, um, perhaps no detail of Revelation has been more intriguing to people than this number. What is this number and what is it not? Um, there's been no end to speculation about what this thing is, and, and, and every time anything happens, people, you know, a COVID-19 vaccine happens, and so that must be the mark of the beast. That's happened over and over and over again throughout history. Uh, people misidentifying this mark of the beast. Um, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin all have uh, ways of, of translating the letters into numbers, numerical equivalents, and there have been so many schemes throughout history um, to identify individuals with this number 666. Um, and some of them have been Nero, Caligula, Domitian, Napoleon, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, the Pope. Um, many, 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 many have tried to identify individual people with this number. Um, such speculation is futile since the Antichrist is still to come. with The beast has to come first. The Antichrist and the beast have to come first. Uh, the number 666 can't be associated with any historical individual because it hasn't happened yet. Uh, the church father Irenaeus cautioned against speculating about the identity of the person associated with the number 666 until that a person actually arrives on the scene. Um, and so the four different versions, the four different ways of looking at uh, 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 this prophecy of Revelation have different basic ideas of who, what this 666 means. Uh, the historicist um, uh, framework for interpreting prophecy says that it's the number uh, of the word Latinos and so refers to the Latin or Roman Catholic Pope or Papacy. Uh, that was a, that was very popular among Protestants for centuries. That it's got to be that Pope. Um, the preterist uh, is the number of the letters in the name Nero Caesar. Um, uh, the futurist 
It is the number of the future Antichrist, someone who will be like Nero back from the dead. The idealist, it is the number of imperfection and human evil that leads to idol worship, not a particular person. So there's many different ways to look at that 666. Um, here's a quote from my favorite commentary uh, by a guy named Robert Thomas. Uh, he's the guy that, uh, he's a professor at uh, the Master Seminary who teaches the um, the Revelation class there and has written uh, the, the, he's written the commentary that they use at the Master's Seminary, Cemetery, uh, Seminary, yeah. <laughs> Seminary, <laughs> Master's Seminary, not the Master's Cemetery, uh, yeah, uh, so here, here's what he says, the better part of wisdom is to be content that the identification is not yet available, but will be when the future false Christ ascends to his throne. The person to whom 666 applies must have been future to John's time because John clearly meant the number to be recognizable to someone, but he didn't have the... He didn't have, if it was not discernible to his generation and those immediately following him, and it was not, the generation to whom it will be discernible must have lain and still lies in the future. Past generations have provided many illustrations of this future personage, but all past candidates have proven inadequate as fulfillments. Christians from generation to generation may manifest the same curiosity as the prophets of old regarding their own prophecies, as we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, but their curiosity will remain unsatisfied until the time of fulfillment arrives. In other words, it's okay to be curious, but don't pretend that you know who this 666 is. That's futile. Go ahead. <clears throat> I, I think the, the, the unfortunate speculation arose because there were some, some requirements put on if you don't get the shot, you're going to be fired from your job, that sort of thing. But that's not the same magnitude as you can't buy or sell anything. Uh, so it, it's, not, it's not that. So that, that wasn't it. And also... We don't have the beast yet. Uh, we haven't had somebody set up a big statue in in Jerusalem and say, if you don't worship that, you die. Right? That's a pretty big indicator that we don't have the mark of the beast yet. So, um, so when it comes to this idea of of what we can say the mark of the beast is not, it's not anything until we have a beast. Right? The mark of the beast is not there until we have a beast. And the beast, the, these indications of the beast are not subtle. A big statue in Jerusalem that if you don't worship it, you're killed. Do we have, do we have that now? No. So, so, so anything, anything that's proposed to be the mark of the beast without an actual beast is not the mark of the beast. Right? So, uh, so we, we should not make foolish and idle speculation about things like a, a COVID shot when we don't have a big statue in Jerusalem that if you don't worship it, you're killed. So the precise significance of this number awaits the future time of the Antichrist, but it is noteworthy that the number is the number of man. That's the other thing we get here in the text. It's man's number. Uh, seven is the number of perfection. Why is the seven number of perfection? Seven days of creation. Nothing in nature, right? That's, that's very interesting that, you know, we've got things from nature that mark a year, things from nature that marks a month, but there's nothing in nature that marks a week except the creation. Um, 
and so that's the number of perfection all throughout Scripture. It's God's number. Man falls short of God's perfection. And so what's one less than seven? Six. Um, and so we repeat it six time, uh, three times. Uh, man was created in the sixth day. Slaves were freed after six years of service. Fields were sown only six consecutive years and then laid fell on the seventh. Um, repeating the number three times here, 666, emphasizes that it's man's number. It's an emphasis. Just like the thrice repeated statement, holy, 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 is an emphasis of God's absolute holiness. This is an emphasis, 666, that it's man. Man, man, man. Not God. Man, man, man. So remember the, the context here that, that Satan is setting himself, trying to set himself up as God. He's trying to self, set up the Antichrist as Christ. He's got this false prophet that's like a fake Holy Spirit. But the, what, what is the scripture telling us here? Man, man, man. Those, that beast and that uh, false prophet are men. They're not God. Yes, sir. Uh, okay, uh, so we have this false religion on a scale never before seen. It's coming, led by the most notorious of all false prophets, the final false prophet. Uh, most people will follow the safe and prudent course. I'll, okay, I'll just get this mark so I can buy stuff. Uh, but that's a tragic mistake with disastrous consequences. Those who persist in worshiping the beast will face the wrath of God. Um, and so what about the false prophet himself? who brings uh, everybody, millions, uncounted millions, to, uh, to worship the, the beast and to leading to their destruction. Uh, we find out about him, and we met, I mentioned this before, in chapter 19, he gets tossed into the lake of fire. Uh, the beast was seized with the false prophet who had performed the signs, and these two were thrown into the lake of fire, thrown alive into the lake of fire, uh, which burns with brimstone. So that's his ultimate fate. That's what's going to happen to this, both of the beasts, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Yes. So, yeah, so this is another speculation. So uh, there's, there's been a big battle about what is it possible for somebody to take the mark of the beast and then to repent and be saved? Some say yes and some say no. Uh, John MacArthur stirred up a huge hornet's nest when he said he thought that, yes, they could be. And everybody else condemned him, and right away condemned him, and said, "Nope, if you take the mark of the beast, that's that's it. You're you're done." Um, I I don't know, I don't know. Most most people say if you've taken the mark of the beast, then then you're done. Uh, but John MacArthur says, "Nope, you can still be saved even if you take the mark of the beast." Uh, I don't know, I don't know. Um, so uh, we have this, uh, uh, this. So this this challenges. It's it's a sobering passage. It challenges believers to lead careful, watchful, godly lives, um, and to evangelize the hopelessly lost world headed for destruction. So if you have an unbelieving family member or coworker, you don't want them to be deceived by the beast um, and have this mark on their forehead and be thrown into the lake of fire. You don't want that to happen. And so it's a motivation for us to evangelize those who are lost. Um, believers are to faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and rescue the souls of men and women from disaster. Now, it's not us who does the rescuing, of course. Um, it's, it's God who does the rescuing. It's the Holy Spirit that regenerates the heart. But uh, for his own reasons and his own purposes, he allows us to be part of that process by preaching the gospel. All right. Any questions? Yes, sir. All right. Let me, uh, let me close this in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time uh, gathered around your scripture. Uh, we thank you for um, the promises and warnings that we get from 
uh, scriptures like uh, the book of Revelation. And we thank you for the ending, uh, the fact that at the end uh, you are triumphant. We have your millennial kingdom yet to come, and we have the new heavens and the new earth yet to come. And we thank you that those are included in scripture as well as a great comfort to us. Uh, whenever, whatever time a believer is living in, we know the end of the story. Uh, we know that you are triumphant. Uh, we know that you are sovereign over all of history, and we thank you for that, Lord. Uh, we thank you for our opportunity that we're about to have to worship you as the body of Christ. And we, we ask, Lord, that uh, the worship that we offer you would be acceptable in your sight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.